Hello, this is John Cleese, and you're listening to the Podcast Network. Welcome to the No Illusions Podcast for Monday, May 23rd, 2011. My name's Cameron Riley. Welcome back to the show, the show we never thought we would get to do. Why? Well, because, as I'm sure you know by now, the world was supposed to end on Saturday night, May 21st. Well, not end as such. Uh, The rapture was supposed to come for all of the good Christians, the righteous Christians. They were supposed to rise up into the air uh, to meet, to be greeted by Jesus at 6 p.m. in every time zone around the world, while simultaneously earthquakes would start, which would kill millions of people. And uh, then the world would be destroyed once and for all on October 21st, 2011. Now, um, as you may have noticed, uh, that didn't happen. (laughs) But in case you haven't been keeping up to date with uh, all of this, you've only picked up bits and pieces on Twitter and the news, I thought I'd give you the the full story because it's a great one. So there's this guy, Harold Camping. He's 89 years old. He runs an organization called Family Stations, Inc. Now, according to their website, familyradio.com, I'm not sure how long this will remain up there, so we should listen to it while we can, or read it while we can. It says, Family Stations, Inc. is a non-profit, non-commercial Christian radio network. It was established in 1958 with one FM station in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mr. Camping, along with two other Christian men, purchased KEAR with the sole intent of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice those two other Christian men don't get a mention by name. Wonder what happened to them. Today, there are 66 owned and operated radio stations throughout the U.S. Along with these domestic stations, family stations also broadcast its programming from numerous international broadcast facilities throughout the world. Who is Harold Camping? Harold Camping is the president and general manager of Family Stations, Inc. He graduated from UC Berkeley in 1942 with a degree in civil engineering. Mr. Camping has been a full-time volunteer since Family Radio's infancy and has never received compensation for his service. So he's never taken compensation since 1958. Got to wonder how he makes a quid. I guess he's a civil engineer. Doesn't really say. Uh, what qualifies Mr. Camping to make pronouncement of the pronouncement of May 21st, 2011? Mr. Camping has been a tireless student of the Bible for over five decades. The tens of thousands of hours he has spent analyzing the Bible has given him a unique perspective on the entirety of Scripture. He has dedicated his life to prepare himself to answer questions raised concerning God's word to man. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, spent tens of thousands of hours analyzing the Bible over five decades and came to the conclusion that the rapture was going to happen on May 21st, 2011, and it fucking did. So good on you, Harold. There's a life worthwhile, life spent in worthwhile pursuit. So exactly what uh, did they say? This is good stuff. What proof is there for the date of May 21st, 2011. The date May 21st, 2011 was derived solely from evidence found in the Bible. Mr. Camping saw God had placed in Scripture many important signs and proofs. These proofs alert believers that May 21st of 2011 is the date Christ will return for His people 
and begin a period of the final destruction of the world. Well, um, what signs precede the Day of Judgment? Jesus is warned of several spiritual signs, such as the complete degradation of the Christian church, the devastating moral breakdown of society, the re-establishment of national Israel in 1948, the emergence of the gay pride movement, and the complete disregard of the Bible and all of society today as direct evidence of his return. <laughs> now, he doesn't actually point to chapter and verse of the Bible where Jesus warns of the emergence of the gay pride movement, but I, for one, would like to read that. I think it goes something like, And lo, I say unto thee, rainbow colors will they wear, and scarves, and tight hugging pants, and be fabulous they will, and listen to Barbara of the Streisand, and, and kiss each other on the mouths. I say unto thee, be careful, for this means the end of time has come. Um, ah, la, la, la. He reveals his plan. Uh, yeah, I want to get to the facts of what's supposed to happen. Um, come on, let's get to the good stuff. Um, oh, this is some good stuff. What if May 21st ends and nothing occurs? The biblical evidence is too overwhelming and specific to be wrong. Christ's people can look with great confidence to this date because God promises his beloved he will not come upon them as a thief in the night. God in his mercy has revealed the vital information needed to know the day. Judgment Day on May 21st, 2011 will occur because the Bible declares it. Anyone whom God has not saved will arrive at that day with no hope for salvation. God warns simply, the door will be shut. Now, uh, Mr. Camping's daughter has since spoken to him, I believe, so apparently he didn't get taken up, uh, which is very sad for him, I should imagine. Sorry, just taking a drink. Um, yes, um, well, what, what should a person do when he or she hears the message, cry out to God for mercy and fully recognize you're a sinner? One must approach God with a broken and contrite attitude because, after all, every human being without exception is guilty before God. <laughs> oh, yes, you're guilty. You're awful people. Know that. Didn't Harold Camping say that the world would end in 1994? In 1992, Mr. Camping wrote a book called 1994? Question mark. In that book, Mr. Camping highlighted the abundant evidence pointing to 1994 as a probable year of Christ's return. Given the abundance of information pointing to 1994 and the urgency of time, the book 1994 was written. Mr. Camping felt, as a teacher, he must share the biblical information he had found and warn the world. Important subsequent biblical information was not yet known, so this book was incomplete. Why, the, they had bits of the Bible he hadn't read yet? Mr. Camping warned there may be something he overlooked, therefore the question mark was prominently placed on the title. Mr. Camping wrote on pages 494 and 495 of the book 1994, he believed 2011 was the most probable year of Christ's second coming. Given the fact 2011 is the 7,000-year anniversary of the flood, but he misunderstood Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, verse 22, except those days should be shortened. At the time, Mr. Camping concluded the period of great tribulation would be shortened from 23 years, as the Bible teaches, to 2,300 evening mornings, or six and one-third years. Mr. Camping wrote in 1994, 
God appears to be declaring that this final tribulation period should be a certain length of time. If it were that length of time, it seems it would fit perfectly with God's plan of 7,000 years. Judgment Day would be 2011 AD, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Why is there no question now? In the 19 years since 1994 was written, the biblical evidence for 2011 has greatly solidified. Today, there is no longer any question. May 21st, 2011 is the day in which Jesus Christ will return. What would you say to those who insist we cannot know the precise day of Judgment Day? For one to object to May 21st, 2011, one must have biblical authority to do so. Objections cannot be based upon consensus, traditions, or fear. God has given too many biblical proofs for anyone to disregard May 21st simply because he or she does not like it. So uh, that's from their website. Um, let's see if we can turn it on and see what's going on on there. Thank you, Lauren. Now, friends, we're going to open the pages of our Bibles to the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, the third chapter. I trust that as we read the word of God, it may prove to be a blessing. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert, and he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Well, obviously, uh, they've decided to keep the uh, radio station on the air. They weren't so convinced the world was going to win that they decided to take the radio station down. <laughs> I'm going to try calling them now uh, on their phone-in number and see what we get. Just uh, dialing via Skype here, a 1-800 number in the US. Let's see if this uh, works. Hmm. It says it's connected, but I can't hear anything. Oh, look at that. Uh, all right, well, so much for that little experiment. Uh, we don't get to talk to the people at Family Radio. I imagine they're lying pretty low. Well, that was... Uh, let me put my microphone back on the front. Oh, there you go. So that was... Uh, a little bit of fun for the weekend. Uh, let's uh, just finish off with a couple of other stories that I wanted to share with you. Here's my Evernote. Uh, two months on. I don't know if you guys uh, read Charlie's Diary, but it's a great blog, antipope.org slash Charlie. It's the blog of Charles Stross, one of the great sci-fi authors around today. Um, he posted something called Two Months On, about Fukushima, and I want to read it with you. You know, I still continue to see in the mainstream media, not as much now as there was a little while back, but there's still a lot of fear-mongering around the nuclear disaster in Japan. But Charlie summed it up quite well. The Economist has a report from the International Conference on Advances in Nuclear Power Plants of a plenary session discussing the Fukushima Daiichi accident. It's well worth reading. The main highlights seem to be the accident wasn't the result of a single disaster, but of two and arguably three. 
earthquake, tsunami, and subsequent hydrogen explosions. The plant survived the earthquake, which exceeded its design requirements quite well, and the reactors scrambled correctly. However, scrammed reactors continue to need power to run their cooling systems. The earthquake tore down the cables connecting the plant to the rest of the grid, forcing them onto backup power. The tsunami struck 15 minutes later and was roughly five times higher than the plant had been designed for. A review of disaster preparedness in 2002 recommended raising the average wave height they needed to be designed to cope with to about double the height of the biggest waves in the historical record, 5.7 metres for the FD plant. In the event, the tsunami that struck had 15 metre waves. So twice, double the height of the biggest waves ever would have been 5.7 metres, but the tsunami was 15 metres. It's insane. It washed right over the plant and wrecked the seawater intakes, electrical switchgear, backup generators and on-site diesel storage. The 2002 severe accident review that increased the tsunami wave height estimates recommended installing hardened hydrogen release vents to prevent a buildup of hydrogen in event of a similar accident. These are standard on American and other reactors but had not been retrofitted to the FD BWRs. Were such vents fitted, the explosions would not have occurred. The explosions compounded the difficulty of bringing the plant under control. Despite all this, there appears to have been no public health impact due to radiation. Stress and fear are another matter. And no plant workers were exposed to more than 250 millisieverts, the raised limit for emergency nuclear responders equal to five years regular working exposure, but insufficient to cause a serious health risk. So, serious accident? Yes, but it's no Chernobyl. The main takeaway seems to be that like a plane crash, it takes more than one thing going wrong to cause an accident. In this case, two major natural disasters, each of which exceeded the plan's design spec, occurring within the space of an hour, compounded by failure to implement a safety system that is standard elsewhere. Despite which, they managed to dodge the bullet for the most part. It's still going to take billions of dollars and several years to clean up the plant. So there you go. Worth reading um, antipope.org slash charlie for that story. Um, the other major story that we should talk about today is uh, more about Obama's speech that I mentioned in the last show to the American, uh, Israeli, uh, blah, 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 the AIPAC thing, investment partnership, blah, 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 whatever that AIPAC organization really is. Um, There's a great, uh, good uh, friend of the show, Jinjiri, has a great blog at uh, Kadaicha, Kad, I don't know how to pronounce that. K a d a i t c h a. Google it. Um, uh, he, she, Jinjiri, male or female? Don't remember. Um, I'll go with a he. Take a guess if it's a female. I humbly apologise. Um, has written some notes against Obama's speech, which are, are really uh, worth reading. Um, the introduction to his her notes are here. Here are my notes. Scattered vidishens in the detritus of a surly Friday afternoon after wasting good dream time in today's early hours to listen to Obama's imperious snake oil salesmanship live. His neo-colonisation of history and efforts to turn Arab spring into neoliberal winter were impressively transparent. 
With seductive offers of finance infrastructure and job creation, enterprise funds and a comprehensive trade and investment partnership initiative in the Middle East and North Africa, Obama sounded more interventionist than any neocon. Did you appreciate how Obama took oil exports out of the equation? He said, if you take out oil exports, this region of over 400 million people exports roughly the same amount as Switzerland. That's US oil he's talking about. It will pay for the, for the seductive neoliberal debt dependency structures he was touting and, of course, maintain existing US-EU arms sales to the region, which are calibrated by Israel's US congressionally legislated guaranteed qualitative military edge. This had to be the most ironic line. Prosperity also requires tearing down walls that stand in the way of progress, the corruption of elites who steal from the people. Ahem. Wall Street? Goldman Sachs, Enron, Kellogg Root, Halliburton, Blackwater. Plenty to be working on back home, Obama. Obama said, Palestines have walked away from talks. Well, Obama, you failed to put your professedly impotent foot down on settlement activity. What do you think Palestinians should do about the theft of their land? Obama, for the Palestinians, efforts to delegitimize Israel will end in failure. Symbolic actions to isolate Israel at the United Nations in September won't create an independent state. Palestinian leaders will not achieve peace or prosperity if Hamas insists on a path of terror and rejection, and Palestinians will never realize their independence by denying the right of Israel to exist. Israel is doing the lion's share of delegitimizing itself through its criminal atrocities. Obama's unctuous moral vacuity is suited to a sycophantic APAC audience, but not to people in the Middle East. Obama said, we support a set of universal rights. Those rights include free speech, the freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of religion, equality for men and women under the rule of law, and the right to choose your own leaders, whether you live in Baghdad or Damascus, Sanaa or Tehran. Jinjiri writes, but not in Palestine or Israel. Does he even comprehend his moral hypocrisy? Of course, Hamas is democratically elected in Palestine, and the US won't have anything to do with them and keep trying to have them overthrown. So anyway, lots of notes here in Jinjiri's uh, post. Uh, again, you can find it at Kadaitcha, K-A-D-A-I-T-C-H-A. Excellent political blog. I've always subscribed to it and uh, read it on a regular basis. Uh, one more story before we get away. Uh, this is from uh, Dawn.com. Uh, Secret internal American government cables accessed by Dawn through WikiLeaks provide confirmation that the U.S. military's drone strikes program within Pakistan had more than just tacit acceptance of the country's top military brass, despite public posturing to the contrary. In fact, as long as go uh, as bleh, in fact, as long ago as January 2008, the country's military was requesting the U.S. for greater drone backup for its own military operations. Previously exposed diplomatic cables have already shown that Pakistan's civilian leaders are strongly supportive, in private, of the drone strikes on alleged militant targets in the federally administered tribal areas, FATA, even as they condemn them for general consumption. But it's not just the civilian leadership that's been following a duplicitous policy on the robotic vehicles. In a meeting on January 22, 2008, with US CENTCOM Commander Admiral William J. Fallon, Army Chief General Ashfaq Kiyani requested the Americans to provide continuous predator coverage of the conflict area in South Waziristan, where the Army was conducting operations against militants. The request was detailed in a secret cable sent by then U.S. Ambassador Ann Patterson on February 11, 2008. 
Pakistan's military has consistently denied any involvement in the covert program run mainly by the CIA. Just more evidence for you folks that what your political and military leaders confess to in public isn't necessarily what's going on behind the scenes. And this is as true if you live in Australia or the UK or New Zealand or Canada or the United States as much as it's true if you live in Pakistan. Uh, we just have sufficient evidence from around the world now that our political and military leaders just bullshit to us on a constant basis just to keep us quiet and, uh, you know, sitting in our little cubicles, punching in the keys on the keyboards to keep the global economy moving while they just go and run the world however they see fit. Uh, that's Cameron. That's all for today. Hope you have a great week. And uh, what can I plug today? Um, if you're in Brisbane, come to our new cigar lounge. We had a sort of a soft launch of it on Friday night. It's uh, outdoor, big, comfy, like cane furniture, big, comfy cushions, lovely tables, ashtray cigars, undercover. So it doesn't matter if it's rain or shine. We've got heating in there, big sort of... Uh, Metho run, ethanol run heaters give off a lot of light, a lot of heat. Uh, it's fantastic. So if you're in Brisbane, drop into the Cigar Lounge, 18 Eaton, 18 Eaton Street, Nunda, E-T-O-N. Drop in, have a cigar, have a coffee, have a drink. We'd love to see you. Uh, this is coming out.